Okay, welcome back to the Millennial Entrepreneur. This is the second episode of 2022, episode number 82, I think it is. And this episode, I spoke with Tash Grossman, who is revolutionizing store receipts with a digital solution for customers and retailers to completely transform transactions and receipt waste into meaningful interactions. No more paper receipts. Slip is a very interesting business, and what's more interesting about them is the model they're putting out there um, into this kind of world that hasn't really been innovated yet. And so, and also Tash is a very interesting person to see how that she's grown this without actually having a product out there yet. And so, it, for me, I, I needed to have her onto the podcast because she was such an interesting, you know, story to, to tell. And so we spoke about why this space hasn't been innovated in yet and how she plans to grow this two-sided marketplace of getting businesses involved, but also getting customers involved because the software can't work unless both parties are involved. And it's, it's the classic kind of chicken and egg problem, I guess, like which side do you attract first? But it's even, I guess, more complicated to the fact because it's it's both online and offline. There's a bit of a hybrid model there. Um, and so that was a very interesting story that I highly recommend you stay to listen to. And also how she raised £750,000 without actually having a product yet, highlighting other metrics investors look at that you as entrepreneurs are listening right now, you can focus on before having a product or paying customers onto the platform at all. Obviously, she didn't just come up with an idea and pitch it and get investment. There's other things that you can do to get investment, other metrics you can kind of propose to them. And these are the things I really wanted to highlight for people that haven't really been aware of this. And also innovating in a space that is deeply ingrained in human behavior currently and Tash's strategies to educate and try to change the way people you know, the masses shop. This learning and value go across the board for your businesses, you know, the people that you, you guys are listening right now that rely on people changing behaviors. It's a different sort of thing that you have to, you know, when, when you're growing, you have to think about because obviously people carrying paper receipts and stuff like that, it's very, very deeply ingrained in human behavior. I'm genuinely very proud of this one. I think it's it's got so much value ingrained in it that I think you guys should definitely, you know, take and, you know, do whatever you want with it because there is a lot of value in this one for sure. There's so many things that um, I kind of like picked up on after I listened to it personally myself as well, um, even though I was, you know, part of the conversation. If you do enjoy this episode, please be sure to give a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. I highly, highly appreciate it. It helps the podcast grow um, so much. And if you do, I will leave a I will leave a written review. No, I won't do that. I'll give a shout out um, at the beginning of next episode um, as a thank you. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Hey Tash, how are you doing? Hey Sina, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for recording on a Friday. It's been a pretty long week for me. And I think it's been a very long week for you, as, as you mentioned before we hit record. I guess, how has your week been? Yeah, I actually was explaining to someone before, and I'm sure every founder can resonate, that every day feels like a week and every week feels like a minute. That somehow at the moment, the days are going past so, so, so slowly. And you feel like every day, you know, you, the roller coaster of emotions just makes you feel like you've gone through an entire week. But then I get to Friday and I think, oh my God, where's the week gone? It's just literally flown by. So being another one of those weeks, but really positive kind of looking back at it. Um, how has yours been? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the same as yours where as as like a founder, you get so many different emotions pretty much every day. Like 
I had I mentioned to you uh, on the call, but like we're we're like semi planning on raising money fairly soon, and it's like we we had a call with an investor and like it, it didn't go as well as we wanted it to. But then I got like a message from one of our customers saying like, I love the products and I love this. I'm, I'm going to be using, I'm going to Peru on a business trip. And I'm going to use it for like everyone. And it's like getting messages like that is really nice. And it's kind of like what you kind of live for as a startup founder. Yeah. But that was all in one day, by the way. That's the thing. Like everything kind of goes up and down. It's, it's pretty crazy. That was yesterday. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. No, I saw my, I was having a day like that a couple of weeks ago and my friend sent me that day Stephen Bartlett did an Instagram post and it was kind of a graph of you know how you think it's going and all the little blips in the middle and you just have to look back so retrospectively and just think about actually the bigger picture because if you focus on the minor things you can get put down really really quickly and I think that's something in the last six months I've really focused on and kind of my mantra was don't sweat the small stuff you know think about the bigger picture always because it's very easy to have something go negative and then just adopt a negative attitude for the rest of the day so you've really got to focus on the bigger picture it's something that I work on every day I def I definitely found myself going down that sort of like hole and it's quite bad like I normally those sort of things don't get to me that's the thing but then like yesterday it did actually get to me yeah I was like oh god like it's, I mean it just happens it is natural but I guess like for you how do you kind of overcome those things Yes, yeah, so I think at the start, I was really, really bad at it. Like I'd have an awful call and then just go and sit in my bed and cry. Um, and then I think for me, it's around the network of people that I have around me, you know, the people in my founder communities that I've met over the last year or so, my friends that have startups, kind of just sending a voice note, ranting about it, and then just getting on with it. I think that having people around you that understand what you're going through is really, really important because if you internalize all that frustration, it will just give off negative energy. And I think a founder's energy is probably their biggest asset. So I think that being able just to send a voice note to my friend and just say, oh, I'm so annoyed this just happened and then just get on with it. So almost almost kind of internalize it to someone else and then and then just give off positive energy for the rest of the day. I guess I guess the perception of entrepreneurship kind of from the outside is like, obviously you're going to face negativity, but it's kind of like, you just like don't really care about that but I think what I've kind of realized more and more is that you should care about it to some extent but it's kind of like how do you kind of move past that more than anything and it's like so when you when you just said like yeah at the beginning it was just like you'd get those sort of calls and you just like cry on your bed I I actually really like hearing stories like that because it makes kind of entrepreneurship feel very human you know like because being the host of this, I get so many sort of like um, people trying to come on the podcast and a lot of them are just like, there's some of these like, like bullshit entrepreneurs on, on like Instagram, those sort of people. And it's like, I don't really want to give a platform to these sort of people because they're literally just going to talk about all the like money they make. And it might, not, it might be fake, by the way. Like that's another thing. It might not be real. But so yeah, I, I have to be pretty careful. I don't know what the point was originally, but I have to be pretty careful on like who I bring on because I want that story to be very honest. And I think you obviously will talk about raising money in a bit but the fact that you raised like this much money I'm not going to say it, I'll let you reveal but this much money but then at the same time you you're saying that it does it, it definitely de like I, well for me it gives me a lot of hope and it, I definitely it probably gives a lot of hope to other people listening to this podcast I would say so yeah 
I think yeah, it's good. It's definitely, I think it's just about flipping those negativities into learning opportunities, which in the moment is impossible. And at the end of the day, I'll look back and ask myself why at 1pm I wasn't trying to flip that negativity into a learning opportunity and why I was being moody and horrible about it. But I think that, you know, looking from the outside in and thinking about all the negative things that happen and actually how they make you a better entrepreneur, because it's all about building your own resilience. And I think that is something that no one you know, when you when you think about the feature, the you know the character traits of being an entrepreneur, you hear driven, passionate, energetic, confident. You you resilient is a word that I don't think is emphasised enough, and in my opinion, is the most important trait for an entrepreneur to have is all around that personal resilience, um, which is something that I know that I'm building up every day, and I'm not perfect at it yet, but hopefully I'll become more and more resilient as the kind of years go on. Mm-hmm. So I guess like let's jump into Slip. But I guess actually before we before we jump into Slip, what were you kind of doing before you started your own business? Yeah, so straight, you know, even before I went to uni, I was always a very keen bean career person. You know, I was desperate to be in the corporate world. I had a mentor at Accenture when I was 16 through a program at school. And I remember one day she took me into this innovation room and I thought, wow, like this is what I wanna do. I wanna be in innovation. I wanna be in management consulting. That's so cool. Um, so during uni, I did a couple of internships at KPMG and then I joined there straight out of uni. And I loved the whole big city corporate life. I loved getting dressed up, going to work, working in banks, working in Canary Wharf. It was just amazing. And then, just before the pandemic hit, I decided just to change consultancies. I still wanted to stay in, in management consultancy, but I moved to a firm called Gate One, which is more focused on digital and business transformation. But they had an amazing focus on entrepreneurship. And it was this idea that if management consultants thought like entrepreneurs, we would approach client problems more creatively. And there's tons of people in the business that have side hustles and, and businesses which are just so aspirational. So that was a big, big driver for me joining that. And yeah, so before, literally until the day I until I left to start Slip, I was working in consulting for Gate One and I, and I loved it. And I wouldn't change that for the world because you know, it's a great, um, foundation to learning about basic you know corporate skills and my old employer are the most amazing company ever and if anyone's listening and wants to go into consulting you should really consider gate one because they're amazing <laughs> and they didn't pay me to say that <laughs> <laughs> no they don't pay the podcast either to say that um but like before i guess like a lot of people say well so so you left them to start your own business right or did you start it kind of at the same time as working there yeah, so it was, I had the idea before I joined, but the the ability to kind of start working on the business whilst I was still working there was because they had the incubator. So they were really encouraging that I was working on a, you know, an initiative outside of work, which I think a lot of people that have businesses while they're still working, it's very secretive. They don't tell anyone at work. It's all very hush hush. Um, but Gate One were incredibly supportive of that. So Slip was actually born out of the Gate One incubator. Um, and even till even now that I've left, you know, they're still incredibly supportive. I still check in with all the other entrepreneurs every fortnight. We share stories. It's kind of a really great community to be really collaborative with. That's very cool. That's very cool. So I guess like just in like time's interest, I guess what was Slip at the beginning when you when it was just an idea? And I guess how did that incubator kind of shape what it is? I guess it must have shaped the early kind of thinking of what it is now, right? 
Yeah, so really early start was just me trying to solve the problem that I had as a customer. I had been in Zara. I was trying to return a pair of trousers because the buckle had broken. And after queuing for half an hour, I got told that because I'd lost my receipt, I wasn't entitled to an exchange or a refund. And I was so frustrated. And I knew that good startups come out of solving a problem. So that was the problem I was trying to solve. And then it was really only kind of through the incubator, but also the accelerator program I did called the Founder Institute, did I completely change my perception of the problem statement and really viewed my customer as someone different and my customer as a retailer and really kind of sought out to solve the problem for them. So I think the main thing that, you know, the incubator and Founder Institute did for me was A, you know, who is who is the customer and what's the problem? But B, is this an idea that's worth, you know, does it have product market fit? What's your go-to-market strategy? How do you acquire new customers? And kind of teaching you all the startup jargon that you definitely need to know. Um, because I think that it's a, a whole new, a whole new dictionary that people just enter when they become entrepreneurs. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. So I guess like what well, so that the problem with there that slips trying slips solving is that like how does it work when you don't have receipts when it comes to returning things yeah so that was the customer problem and and actually most people don't know but receipts are awful for the environment so 90 percent of them in the uk are coated with bpa which was the plastic chemical that was banned from water bottles and sippy cups etc so the uk produces around 11.2 billion receipts a year so by no means a small amount and most of them can't can't be recycled. So it was the sustainability and you know customer inconvenience I was really trying to solve. But actually, the retailer problem is so much bigger, which is they have no way of communicating and understanding in-store shoppers like they do in the online world. And that creates such a big data gap. And there's just such a lack of personalization and omnichannel experiences. So really, by using the receipt, it allows customers to be you know, convenient and sustainable, but retailers to really understand customer omnichannel journeys, which is a, a big topic post-pandemic now that so much of shopping is done online. Now, guys, I get so many questions about how to start a podcast. Now, I started my podcast during the pandemic. My biggest challenge was recording remotely while maintaining quality because Zoom it just doesn't cut it. It's not very good because it's built for video. It's not built for podcasting. And if you if you know about me, if you know like my story about starting a podcast, you know that I've been using Zencaster for so long since the beginning, since the very very first episode. I've been using Zencaster. The reason is is because I care a lot about quality, and Zencaster with their quality, you know, is so good because they record audio and video on both sides. So they don't just record it on my side, they record it on both sides. So that means there's no loss in quality, even with a poor internet connection. So if you wanna get into podcasting, Zencaster is the perfect solution. I highly recommend it. And obviously they're a, they're a sponsor of the podcast, which is why I'm talking about them now. And when they got in touch, I was so excited because they're, they're such a cool service. If you want to get into podcasting, highly recommend that you use them. They're probably the first service I would recommend. They actually have a free version, but if you want to make your podcasting experience to the next level, so like using AI-powered transcription services, automatic post-production with editing, and all those kind of services they're bringing out, kind of like they're bringing them out very, very fast, actually, to be fair, like new ones, you can use my link in the description and you'll get 30% off your very first three months. Um, that's zen.ai forward slash the millennial entrepreneur zero. 
uh, and you'll get 30% off your first three months. The link is in the description. Zencaster, they're really cool. Now, before we jump in to the episode again with Tash, I really wanted to find out kind of how the software works. And so that's what we talk about now. Yeah, so as a customer, you sign up to Slip and then you get given a personalized QR code, which acts as semi like a data passport. And you can put that QR code into your phone wallet. So at the point of a transaction where a receipt would typically be printed or emailed, you present that QR code to the retailer, they scan it and instantly in real time, you get posted a receipt. So as a customer, you can view and manage all of your receipts from everywhere that you shop all in one place, um, which I think is really important because right now, you know, the customer is tracking through kitchen drawers, shoe boxes, email inboxes. It's kind of all very scattered. And I do think that the Gen Z millennial tech savvy customer does like to have everything in one place. And I don't think I'm, I'm alone in that one. Um, and then retailers are able to kind of understand a bit more about the demographics um, of the customer that's coming in, but all anonymized. So it really, it really kind of keeps the data privacy of the customer at the heart. So it's all obviously GDPR compliant and it's all around creating informed experiences through data privacy, which is something that people really, really struggle to do. Mm, that's really interesting. I mean, it makes so much sense because like you don't want to carry around thousands of receipts, right? Especially when it comes to like warranties and guarantees and stuff like that. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense like, because like, why can't you just have all the receipts in one place on like an app? I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. And and even like the online receipts, it can be revolutionized to that, to that extent too. It's not just sure. offline. Obviously offline has got a bigger problem to it. Like online, you could, you could probably get away with, with it, but yeah, I, I'd say it's it's surprising that this is the thing when it comes to these sort of problems is that I, f- I feel like because it's been happening for so long people just kind of forget about it mm. it's kind of like the norm so yeah. I think for you I, is the biggest challenge would you say trying to inform like I guess shops and also customers on this is kind of a new way of doing things given they've been doing it for so long Yeah, I think that's the thing. And I think that that comes where there is a problem, but people can't be bothered to solve it. And an example that I always like to use is that no one thought that putting in four digit pin numbers was frustrating until contactless came about. And then no one thought that contactless was frustrating until Apple Pay came about. So by introducing new innovations, you can make existing processes much quicker and more frictionless. And people don't really realize the problem until they have, you know, a better solution. And I think that's the problem is that there hasn't been a better solution offered in this space. So until a customer is in this scenario where they can just scan a QR code and get a receipt without having to spell out their email address to a poor sales assistant that just doesn't care, you know, you didn't know that taking a paper non-recyclable copy or standing it and giving out your email address was so frustrating. So I think it's all around introducing new technology and retail is a really, really interesting space because typically they're not the first to change and, and adopt. But if you look at what happened with frictionless stores and checkoutless stores this year, you know, Amazon opened them and within a couple of months, Tesco had and then Sainsbury's and then Aldi. Because you look at what the big, you know, tech, players are doing and you kind of copy copy it it's a very kind of copycat industry um so yeah we're just kind of looking for the pioneers to be the first ones to say this is this is a new way and this should be the right way um to do digital receipts and customer information i think that's you know a big thing when we talk about slip we talk about humanizing and innovating the way that we do digital receipts and customer information yeah 
Before we talk about fundraising, a question I definitely have around this is that it's it's a fairly interesting sort of business model you're, kind, you're trying to grow because we, we've talked on this podcast a lot about kind of like uh, marketplaces and stuff like that and how difficult it is to grow them. You essentially are kind of building a two-sided thing where yeah. the customers and the and the stores need to have that technology there. So I guess like a fundamental problem for you when it comes to growing is how do you attract both sides at the same time? Because yeah. you can't have one side without the other because it just doesn't work. Yeah, you you hear so many different phrases for the thing that you just said. You hear catch 22, chicken and egg, the inevitable problem. That's probably one of my favorite ones. But I think for us, you know, we look at, leaders in this space and look at what they did so Klarna for example is huge in e-commerce now and now it's got to a point where customers expect it to be at checkout but the reason why is because they focus so heavily on b2b acquisition so it just became something that customers were more regularly seeing at checkout and now it's at the great point for Klarna where you know retailers approach them because they want to offer it because of the customer convenience so we're massively looking at that as well and really focusing on b2b acquisition and partnerships and relationships first because there's no point having customers on it if there's no if there's no retailers and i think that that's a stronger argument than the other way around um for now anyway so we're focusing on kind of retailers relationships partnerships um and yeah that's that's the plan and that's how we're approaching catch i would argue is I would argue like, because it's a big challenge, not just for you, but for a lot of startups within with like a similar sort of business model. But I'd probably argue that Klarna and other sort of um, online, I guess, plugins, it's fundamentally different to what you guys are doing to to, to, to a certain degree. Because yeah. with, with, it, with, with Klarna, obviously they can plug into stores and stuff like that online because the 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 risk the risk to that store and the cost for that store is like very very minimized because it's online the variable cost is like nothing to them whereas if they want to have all of this technology in all of their stores in in like physically does that not pose more problems like at all or do you think it's like not really a problem like from an integration perspective it obviously is slightly more complicated but i think that that's where kind of our tech team are quite under control with it and and thinking of the most plug and play way that we can roll out our solution to as many places as quickly as possible um and i think that's something that we've you know bear in mind from the st- from the outset and and continue to do throughout our product development but yeah i think you know it's it's not i'm not by no means saying it's the same as klarna but I think that it's it's the same theory around focusing on the retailers first because customers have to know it exists. You have to drive awareness and education before you drive adoption. And by only it being present in multiple locations, will you start doing that? That That's my kind of take on it anyway. No, I agree. Like whenever it comes to these sort of business models, you need to attract the the group that, that poses the least um, risk to them yeah. and the least sort of amount of cost for them. So like with consumers, like what's the point of them downloading an app like this when they can't use it anywhere? So obviously that's like a, yeah. Whereas like for these other stores, it's like the the cost for them to do it is fairly small mm. and any sort of benefit they get is like, so the, the risk versus reward is like, it can be positive, you know? Sure. So I, I agree with you. And I think like, it doesn't just go for people like listening. It doesn't just go for this sort of, just just for slip, but it also goes for a lot of different two-sided sort of marketplaces where you need to attract both sides in order to create value for for both sides um so yeah that is very interesting but 
I really want to move on to um, the fundraising because it's a very interesting solution that you guys have. And I, I, I'm completely sort of, I'm really excited to see it and actually in action. Um, so I guess before we jump in, I guess you can announce now kind of how much you've raised, right? So yeah. is the first, is this the first time you've announced it or do you have announced it on LinkedIn? Is this like a no, podcast No, I haven't even exclusive? announced it on LinkedIn. because Oh my God, this is like a podcast as, exclusive. As Let's speak, go. Like, as we speak right now, the legal docs are all being signed fin- finally after kind of, a couple of weeks of, of back and forth but yeah so we have raised seven hundred fifty thousand pounds as our pre-seed round which is very exciting it's been a lot of hard work but i'm very very grateful for kind of all of our investors for believing in us and kind of backing us to take this to the next level amazing the the millennial entrepreneur exclusive right there <laughs> um i guess you you raised that level of money so 750k before we hit record you said it your pre-product now and pre-launch which means i guess you haven't got something that people can actually like people aren't paying for it like customers aren't paying for it yeah uh, these stores so i guess for people on the like listening i know their question would be like how do you raise money when you don't actually have anything like that that people are paying for like there's no revenue so like how do you like how's that process work yeah, so I I think taking it back to the first stage, I don't think any founder should raise money unless they have to. I think that bootstrap for as long as you possibly can, um, because you know it's it's much more effective like that. But we got to a place within our business where we had spoken to so many customers and so many retailers and validated that this is something that the industry wants and from from both from both perspectives. And I think that only at that point when we, you know, started to build tech and house and realized that the technology solution that we're building has to be a specific level of robust and secure because you're managing customer data, which means that you need funds to build it, which means that you need to fundraise. So we kind of set out with this target of 750 and I never wanted it to exceed and I would have taken a bit less to be fair. But the idea of of what we were doing was to kind of get enough funds to build the product, but not just build it, to then launch it into the market and prove that it's a product that people want, it's a product that people are liking, to then value raising again. Now, we had tons of advice, you know, go and raise a pre-seed and 150k SAS, build something and then raise again. But the challenge is that we would build it, but we wouldn't have the money to launch it. And then you'd almost be in the same position trying to justify a higher valuation. So we kind of took the attitude of let's try and raise this money. I sat down, I made like a fundraising strategy and I just spoke to everyone and anyone I physically could about it. And the thing that I valued the most about the entire experience, obviously all the people that said yes, I value them tons, but I also value all the people that said no, because I learned so much from the reasons why people weren't interested. Um, And I think that every no I got felt like a bit of a stab in the heart um, at the time, because I, at the start, was taking it really, really personally. Um, and I had to learn not to do that because it wasn't personal when people said no to Airbnb and Uber and, you know, they're kicking themselves in the foot every day. But it was just how do you create a fundraising strategy and execute that? And I think that that's the advice I would give to anyone looking to raise, whether you're pre-product, post-product, actually have a strategy in mind. Don't just, you know, speak to every single investor in the world think about the value that they can bring and why you're approaching them and why they should be working with you. Because if you already have that in your mind, you spend less time trying to justify to them that it's a good opportunity. Um, so yeah, that 
that's kind of high high level how I did it I guess mm. that is really interesting I know loads of people will be like how how can you raise money without actually having like revenue or anything in the bank like how can you justify that so I guess like I, I, I've seen it so many times though, by the way, like it's not, I'm not like pointing you out or whatever, but it's just, it's an interesting point to make because a lot of people would think you need certain metrics there. Um, so I guess like, how would it be possible for, I guess it's not as easy as just like having an idea and pitching it to investors, right? No, as in like, look, we've got six to 700 people on a user wait list without spending a pound on marketing. You know, people are actively looking for our solution. So, you know, if I start, spending some money on advertising, I'm sure that waitlist will increase. We have a retailer already committed. We have ongoing conversations with quite a few. So, you know, I think that's that's that. But, you know, without doubting my strength as a founder, I think that a big part about my ability to raise has been the strength of my advisory team, that actually people look at the advisors that have, you know, said they want to get involved with Slip and are coming on as formal investors and advisors into my business and thought, those people can really drive this forward and they have the industry knowledge, the industry experience to work with me on making this, you know, the next big thing. So I think that's my biggest advice to people is get amazing advisors. I have never been under the impression that I can do this on my own. And if I was, I would be back at work and and not doing this anymore. You know, I'm I, as well as all the other guests on your podcast are young. And, you know, although I have a whole thing about age and I hate when people ask how old I am because it makes me feel like they're questioning my ability. I also do recognize I am young and there are people around me that understand the space way better than I have and have worked in it for 30 years more than I have. So listen to them and take advice and guidance from them. And then that's how the business will drive forward. Mm, that's very interesting. So it's not just kind of like, you said a few things that I definitely want to emphasize because a lot of people kind of when you because they just kind of see on Dragon's Den and all this type of stuff when it comes to raising money but you you had a few metrics there that do justify raising money right like the 600 waiting list is something that doesn't happen by accident mm. the the like retailer waiting and already committed and then the other ones in the pipeline that you can you can show a very strong pipeline right so these are things that kind of you for anyone listening you can't just have an idea and then start raising money like yeah. having those metrics in place in replacement for revenue or whatever or like user growth because some businesses don't work that way um then yeah then you can definitely justify going out for for raising some money because otherwise it's just literally an idea right yeah um i think i think there are tons of programs out there as well like i would recommend anyone to do an accelerator program fundamentally i would say my business would not exist if i didn't do founder institute um, but there are so many, there's Techstars, there's Y Combinator, there's Founders Factory, there are so many great um, incubator programs that really help drive your business forward. And also a lot of them do give you funding as kind of a replacement for, uh, not replacement, as a reward, I guess, for taking part in the program. So I think people that think they have a great idea and really want to validate it and then potentially kick off that fundraising process, I'd really encourage them to look at those programs. Um, Founders Institute doesn't give you any investment, but they definitely teach you how to, you know, go about thinking about investment and and raising that capital. Mm. Also, it gives you a lot of like, um, 
uh like clout and a lot of sort of like credibility as a yeah. startup because like we we just got into NatWest Accelerator, my startup, and well already kind of like having that badge on our pitch decks and just being mm. able to tell people, it gives us a lot of like credibility, right? It's like a big company like NatWest is backing us. Yeah. And it's it's the same goes with other, all of these other like tech stars and all these other like incubator and accelerator programs for sure. Um definitely adds to that something that you mentioned like quickly before we kind of wrap up is the advisors that's mm. something i actually haven't heard before when it comes to like the strength of a startup is having like official advisors involved yeah because like we've got advisors involved as well in our business and they definitely do add not just the knowledge that they bring but also the credibility that i just mentioned yeah so i guess like how valuable do they come in for both advice but also when it comes to raising money like do people look at that yeah, so I, look, I think I think it totally depends on the space you're in and who the advisors are. And I think that as a business, you can have informal advisors who are just like mentors and friends that you can call on. And I've got hundreds of them that, you know, I could call up tomorrow and say, I'm really struggling with this. What should I do? But then there's bringing people more formally into your business. And there's, you know, great templates of how you can do this. And you can give them share options and equity. So they're fully invested in the business as well. I think that my advisors are, you know, the best people ever and I can go to them with whatever problem, but it's more that from a raising perspective, I wouldn't say that they were like crazily important this round from an introductions perspective, but they will be on the other side, on the other side of it in terms of acquiring customers. But having said that, you know, I've got plenty of introductions through my advisors and you know, people don't lie when they say your network is your net worth and warm introductions and personal relationships are so important in the startup ecosystem, whether that's user and customer acquisition, but more so investors. You know, I can't tell you the amount of investors I applied for using a type form on their website and only spoke to them because I had a warm introduction and I none of the investors I spoke to were anything but warm introductions and I spoke to maybe over 30 so it just shows how valuable a network is around you whether that's your advisors who can add value in that sense or just kind of growing your your startup network and people that are willing to make introductions is, is really important. That's 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 amazing. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. Okay, cool. So I think we we should probably wrap up there. Um, it's been amazing talking with you, Tash, and talking Thank about you. Slip. I can't wait to see you guys um, use that money, build your products, and actually finally launch. I think that'd be amazing. So I guess, how can people stay in touch with you and your journey uh, with Slip in the meantime after this episode? Yeah, so for me personally, follow me on LinkedIn, Tash Grossman. I, I post quite regularly. I'm trying to launch a Founder Friday initiative. So I always like to highlight other founders. Um, so you can definitely follow me on LinkedIn. Our website is trislip.com. We have a wait list where people can sign up now for kind of exclusive access to the app when we launch around the summertime. So you'll see us in the app store kind of July, August, as long as my developers aren't lying. Um, and yeah, kind of re- really do follow us on LinkedIn and and follow the journey and more than happy to kind of speak to any entrepreneurs that are struggling with fundraising or just kind of kicking off the ground and more than happy to share some other war stories and experiences okay great thank you so much tash again for coming on the podcast i can't wait to see your product and uh, yeah chat soon thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. I was right, wasn't I? This episode was really good. Tash's knowledge and the experience that she's went through is highly valuable. I mean, I was listening to it and there was so much value jam-packed in the sort of 30 minutes that we had a conversation. So even if you want to listen to it twice, like I reckon you'd find other nuggets of knowledge in there um, because it was so valuable, especially the story around how you kind of 
you know, get funding without actually having a platform, without having, you know, paying customers. There's other metrics that you can get to that stage. Um, so I absolutely love this episode. And if you loved it as much as I did, I would highly appreciate if you leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts as well. It helps out the podcast so much. Share it with a friend, help the podcast grow. Share the love. <laughs> and if you do, I will leave a, oh, why do I keep saying this? I won't leave a five-star written review because I've actually done that. But I will give you a shout out in the beginning of the next episode. You have my word on that. Before we head off, I want to tell you quickly about the podcast new sponsor, VinoVest. This is not financial advice and please do not take my advice, but as someone that invests a lot into a lot of different things and wants to diversify, I'm constantly looking for new opportunities. I recently stumbled across VinoVest and they've recently sponsored the podcast. I personally haven't invested with them, but I'm looking at it really closely because it's such an interesting space for sure. So what is it? Fine wine has long been a cornerstone of wealth generation and preservation. The problem, historically, it's been reserved for the ultra wealthy, right? And the people that know a lot about wine. VinoVest is changing that. So wine, like historically, has one, uh, one third of the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed the global equities market over the last 30 years, according to sources from, from them, with, with a 10.6% annualized return. Now, I personally don't know anything about wine. If you know anything about me, I don't really drink that much. Um, I don't drink at all, to be fair. But I'm always looking for new investments. And VinoVest really stood out to me because it makes it so easy to acquire new investments, equipped with a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones would gain value over time. You actually own the wines in your portfolio outright. So if you are a drinker, unlike me, um, you can actually buy them, sell them, drink them um, whenever you want. So if you are actually interested in checking them out and it's something that you would be interested in, um, then please go, go to my link, zen.ai uh, forward slash millennial entrepreneur to receive two months of fee-free investing. Um, again, this is not financial advice. You may lose your money. Your capital is definitely at risk. But if you want to play around with it, please do use my link because it will help you out. Uh, it is in the description as well. So without further ado, thank you again for listening to the podcast. and I will catch you in the next episode.